This is the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. Three, two, one, and welcome everybody to this episode of the Coming Home Podcast with John Allen. And I have on the phone, on the road, back in the southwest United States, Mr. Steve Hostetter. How you doing, Steve? I'm doing all right. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Um, I want to start off by asking you this question. Um, what made you want to open yourself to uh, coming on to any podcast, no matter how big or how small? I think that's a very generous thing that you did. What made you come up with that idea? Well, well in a way, it's selfish also, because <laughs> I'm just kind of bored on the road right now. So... When I'm on the road, when I'm on the road as a comic, I'm usually with two other comics, yeah. and I'm not doing the driving for the most part. And you know, I'm either taking a nap or you know, texting or getting work done. And so I never really have time to go on vodka. Uh-huh. And on this on this trip, I'm doing it solo because of COVID. I'm not, you know, I'm not on a trip as a comic. Um, I just went to the East Coast so I could see family before it got too cold, so I could see them outside and not kill them. <laughs> and uh, once it got, you know, once it got too cold, I started driving back to LA, and I realized, hey, I'm going to be in the car for, you know, five to eight hours a day. Why not do some podcasts? Why not finally say yes to all the stuff I've been saying no to for the last couple of years? Man, I, I, that's a great idea. Uh, a little selfish, like you said, but uh, but 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 quite generous on on your part. Um, the selfishness, the selfish thing in the entertainment industry. I'll, I'll admit, I do my podcast for selfish reasons. Um, short story is is I lost my son uh, almost exactly a year ago to a heroin overdose, and I was depressed. I was out of my mind with depression, and I needed something new in my life to pull me out of that depression. So I started this yeah. podcast, uh, very selfish reasons, but kind of like what you said, I'm, I'm getting something back for it. You know, here I am, I'm talking to, um, to a top comic like yourself. I've spoken to some other famous people. I've spoken to regular people in the street who they, they leave something on the table with me after the conversation, you know, they, they, they inspire me in some way. They lift me in some way. So there's that selfish original selfish idea that always brings something back to, you know, to me or to you in this case, you know, I'm keeping you alive maybe because you're not falling asleep behind the wheel. <laughs> well, you know, first of all, I, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that, you know, going through loss like that can be very difficult. And I think that what a lot of people don't realize is the, the most of the art in the world is created for some sort of selfish reason, Absolutely. whether it is because the artist, it, it because the artist enjoys creating art um, or, you know, there is some sort of commission involved, whether it is, you know, the old days of, of patrons to, you know, today of, well, patrons again, because that's, you know, the model that uh, we're leaning toward again. Um, I, I think a lot of the wonderful art in the world was created for some sort of selfish reason, but that doesn't mean, you know, it wasn't also altruistic. That's a that's a good point. Um, there, so I guess selfishness, when it comes to the creation of art, selfishness is not a dirty word. And I think that's something that my I'm, I'm an American living here in Norway, and Norwegians are notorious for not wanting to appear 
as better than. And I see that reflection with my musician friends. The, uh, a lot of them will say, hey, man, it's not about making money. I just want to have fun making music. And it's like, okay, but the money is cool as well. And there shouldn't be anything wrong with that. There should be that selfish motivation so that you can better yourself or take yourself a step higher in some way. Am I right? I don't think that's wrong to, well, I don't think it's wrong to I, have that selfishness in there. No. So, you know, so you lead, that leads to a couple of things. I mean, so, you know, what you're describing in Norway, I've seen that when I've performed there. I also see that in New Zealand to an extent in Australia. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I saw that for sure in Japan. It's tall poppy syndrome. It's, ah. you know, don't stick your neck out or yes. you might get cut down. Yes. And, at, you know, the first time I experienced these different cultures, you know, I was a little thrown by it. But once I, you know, for them as an audience. Yeah. But, you know, but once I, I can spot it, tease it a little bit, you know, have fun with it, I, I think it goes away because it's human nature to want to, to, you know, pride is a human thing. Yes. And so giving people permission to have it, um, <laughs> I think changes the room a little bit. I think the other it does. thing you were talking about is the idea, yeah, and the idea of, um, the idea of oh, I just want to do it for the for the art, you know, not for money. It's like okay, well, just doing it because you want to have fun doing the art. That's still selfish, just in a different way. It's you know, it's it's selfish in that you're in you're doing it because you are having fun doing it. You're not doing it because you don't like it, but someone else does. You still like it, and there's nothing wrong with that. And one of the one of the big things that I have found in the entertainment industry is a lot of people think that to be an artist you have to be a starving artist, and that's absolutely not true. You don't need to live in a burlap sack in order to create good art. <laughs> I agree. A difference between there's a difference between selling and selling out. Yes. Selling is selling something you believe in. Selling out is selling something you don't. I am vehemently opposed to selling out, but I see absolutely nothing wrong with selling. You know what? That is such a beautiful way of putting it. That's a very short, concise, to the point, and beautiful way of putting it. Selling out. So, yeah, you know what? Thank you. <laughs> I'm going to write that down. I'm going to put that on a plaque in my office here. <laughs> you know, um, let me ask you this, Steve. You are quite prolific, uh, both on uh, on all social media. Uh, you're all over YouTube. Uh, I, I love your tweets. Um, Facebook, you know, you're that notorious guy who is known for, for crushing the hecklers. Um, has that always been a part of your routine? Um, or was there, a, I'm sure there was a point when you first began with stand-up where heckling possibly intimidated you. Or have you always been this confident guy on stage? Well, I mean, it, you know, it comes from being the youngest of four, being bullied a lot in school. And, you know, you have to have the comeback <laughs> to survive. Absolutely. Um, but there was, there, was a, there was an incident that happened early on in my career that really showed me the psychology of a heckler. Yeah. And not, not just of a heckler, but of the audience. And it was, you know, I'm doing this gig. I was the feature act, so I'm doing, you know, 25 minutes. And it's, you know, early on in my in my feature career. And I'm not being political at all. No. 
And then, you know, and I'm doing really well. I, I get a big laugh. And then I go into a political bit that is actually a nonpartisan bit. Uh-huh. This was 2004. Uh-huh. Now, the opening of the bit is very harsh and very dark. Absolutely. But it's not partisan. The opening of the bit says, um, you know, the conventions were coming up. And I said, we're about to pay $1.6 billion for security uh-huh. for the two national conventions. Uh-huh. How are we spending $1.6 billion to protect the lives of the same people we would most like to see killed by terrorists? <laughs> now, obviously, that's a very dark thing to say. Yes. Yeah. But this woman yells out, and she says, I thought this was a comedy show, not a political rally. So uh, I snapped back with the basic, the, with the basic psychology of, and, and I, I had done this type of thing before. You know, when, when someone tells you you're not funny and you're doing well, it's pretty easy to bat that sure, down. Sure. And so I just very quickly said, oh, I, you know, I thought you could tell it was a comedy show from everybody around you laughing and applauding. <laughs> Which does well. It's fine. I'm about to move on. And another guy says, well, you're not doing very well. Now, I had just used the joke of, yes, I am. I couldn't do that a second time. Right, right. So, you know, the crowd kind of oohs and ahs. And I am, you know, I kind of do the whole, like, oh, I got this, really hoping that I had it. And I <laughs> tried to get him to give me something. Uh-huh. Because you can't get them unless you unless they give you enough rope to hang themselves. Yeah. So... I asked him his name, he didn't tell me. I asked him what he did, he didn't tell me. It's starting to get to be like a minute of silence, and finally, or a minute of no last. And uh-huh. finally, he tells me that I was being mean. <laughs> and without thinking, oh, I'm going to use this to get the crowd, oh, I'm going to get out of this situation now, I just genuinely laugh. Uh-huh. And I said, oh, here, here's how this works. I'm going to say a lot of things. You're not going to like all of them, and I'm not going to give a fuck. <laughs> and I didn't say it. I didn't say it as like a, you know to give him a little emotional shiv or anything like that. No, no. I just said it because I really meant it in the moment, uh-huh. and the crowd went nuts like nothing I had ever seen before. Oh man, and I love it. I realized. I realized it was because they hated him more than I did. Ah. Like he was. Yeah. He, he was interrupting my show, but they spent their entire night to watch that show. Right. They bought tickets, they bought drinks, they bought food, they paid for parking, they probably got a babysitter. They spent a lot of money and a lot of time to come enjoy themselves, and this guy was trying to take that away from them. And so when I said what I said to him, that was nicer than anything that anyone else was thinking. And, and that made right. me realize, oh, this gives me permission. And once I understood that, it was a, a switch and flip, and you know I was able to handle it a lot better. And there you go. And then you get that confidence as the years go by, and it, it's it's like respond. I would imagine it's like responding to hecklers becomes second nature. It's not even anything you have to think of anymore. It's just it's automatic. It comes with confidence. It comes with uh, it comes with time on the mic. Yeah, a lot of it, you know. I'll tell, I'll tell up-and-coming comics that it's a combination of confidence and also trusting yourself to know what is going to be funny to say. Um, there, you know, we all have that 
you know, that little person in our head that tells us not to say something. Oh, yeah. shut up. This would be inappropriate, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You need to kill that person. <laughs> that person <laughs> can't exist. <laughs> that because the quick, oh, I was just saying the, uh, the quicker you respond, the better it is. There's, you know, there's kind of a graph there. And that if it takes you a couple seconds to think of something, it's not as funny as if you said the exact same thing a couple seconds earlier. Right. I think people, yeah, people have to kind of let go of their inhibitions if they're going to get on the mic like that. You can't be afraid to say, like you say, the things that you don't think you should say in a normal situation socially, those are the things you need to not be afraid to say as a stand-up. I I use my wife. Yeah? What is that? There's a caveat. Yeah? Which is, if you're a person that thinks genuinely horrible things, <laughs> don't do this. Uh, because, and, and, like, if you ever saw the clip of Michael Richards, um, yes. you know, going after the heckler, the yeah. clip that kind of ruined his career. Yeah. Um, the reason, now look, what he was trying to do, but he was, you know, an open micer at the time, even though he was famous, he wasn't a comedian, he was an actor. That's right, a lot and of people so don't understand that. He, he was, was a newbie as a comic at that time. Yeah, I have a crazy story from like two weeks earlier than that. Oh, I'm talking about that the improv, but oh. yeah, well, I'll share it. I'll share it in a second. Great, great. But the um, what he was trying to do was basically be like, "Hey, I'm going to say the worst thing I can say to this person because he's being the worst to me," uh-huh. and that's a that's a rational thought. But the worst thing he can say was way worse than anything I would ever say, ever. Like, I would never, I would never say anything on stage I wouldn't say in conversation. Right, right. I just wouldn't say those type of things in conversation. Right. Like, even with my closest friends. Yeah. It would never have occurred to me. It, it would, of all, I could, I could think of a thousand different things to say, and what he said would never have occurred to me because it's not in my it's not in my head in the first place. Well, and I, I think that's an important that's an important distinction. I think it is, and I think uh, Michael Richards and and I've seen other comics do this as well, where they kind of lose their cool, they're angry, and they're saying mean things. It's that combination of being angry and losing control of your art in the moment while you're saying mean things. That's just wrong. Then you're being an asshole. But I think it's quite possible, you know, um, you know, you yourself, I do it in my act. Uh, Louis C.K. does it. Bill Burr does it where they say mean things, but it's not for the sake of being mean. There's a there's a comedic undercurrent to that meanness that you guys are putting out there. If you if you know what I mean, is that I don't know. Is that a right way of is that a right yeah. way of looking at it? Yeah. It's 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 mean. Yeah, it's I mean, mean. That, it's that mean. But you're correct. not trying to you're not trying to hurt anybody. Well, there are times where you can try to hurt somebody as long as it's justified. But you still need to be in control. Exactly. And in the in the clips I've had where you can actually tell them angry, which is you know making five of them, <laughs> I'm not as good as the ones where I'm genuinely having a good time with the yeah. silliness. Of yeah. The whole thing. Yeah, because I know for um, me, for me, you know, pers- one of my best clips. No, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just saying one of one of my best clips was one where someone heckled me at the end of recording a special, uh-huh. and it was so silly to me. First of all, I had done the work that I came to do, so I was relieved. But also, this woman was so mad at me 
and she was in the front row of the taping of a special. And I was like, how did you get here? And just the silliness of that, uh-huh. especially the, the, the absolute gall to try to heckle me after a crowd just watched me for an hour who came to see me because they're fans. Like, that was the worst possible situation for her to try to get one over it. Yeah, I was going to so say, the balls I on just, this woman to do that at that time. <laughs> I was laughing so hard, and <laughs> because of that, the clip, the clip is way better because you can genuinely see that I'm having a great time. <laughs> I love it, man. You know, I, I have to say this, even, and I, and I want to hear that story about Michael Richards. I want to hear that. But I have to say this. Your yeah. um, your style of comedy. Now, now here I am again, bowing at your feet. But, uh, you know, like I told you, I have people on my podcast for specific reasons. They're people whom I admire, people who motivate me in some way, people who inspire me. Uh, in some way, or people who are doing things that I eventually want to be able to do. And you cover all of those categories. Um, You know, I don't know all the details. I only know what my Wikipedia research has found about your background. But you've had moments of adversity, uh, especially in your younger life, from what I understand. Um, And in spite of those things, here you are today doing what you do with such... uh, Finesse. I mean, you're you're a wizard on the mic, and here I am. I'm a fledgling uh, stand-up comic in Norway, of all places. You know, doing my stand-up in English in this land where they speak English as a second, third, or fourth language. And here you are. You just have this fearless element to what you do. Um, is that all show, or are you truly fearless when you're up there? Well, I, I first of all, I appreciate all that. Also. Norway has one of the best stand-up clubs I've played in Europe, which is Ladder. Ladder is yes. phenomenal. Yes, yes, um, it is. And, you know, I, I would think, you know, am I completely fearless on stage? No. Um, but that said, I do feel a level of protection, and part of that is the psychology of knowing that the crowd's with me. Yeah. I've had a couple instances where, you know, people physically threaten me, yeah. And I very, I just very quickly said, well, you're going to have to get through 200 other people if you want to get to me. Huh, and good comeback. Now good that, comeback. That I've, I've also had, thank you, I've also had situations where I was genuinely scared. Yeah. I think the, the, the most fear I've ever had on stage was, because um, no one else could see what was happening, uh-huh. but I was doing a college show in Utica, New York, and... The, it was in a student activities hall, and there was a door next to the stage, to the outside, and there was a sign on the door that said, show in progress, do not enter, go around. And yet, this one kid decided to not only go through, but he then walked very slowly, very purposefully oh. in front of everybody, took his time. Oh, man. Um, when he was... Uh, he was a lacrosse player, and he was holding he was holding the stick. And he, you know, <laughs> as he's taking his time, I just go, "Hey, man, if you just wouldn't mind, kind of, you know, I don't fire him right away. I give him a, you know, benefit of the doubt type of thing." Yeah. And he just stops and looks around and takes more time. So then I start in on him, and I start making fun of how, like, look, dude, you know, if you want attention, maybe get good at something that gives you attention. <laughs> You know, you're not just going to take attention from other people. And I get why you carry that lacrosse stick everywhere. 
is because you desperately want people to ask you about lacrosse when honestly you're probably not even good at lacrosse. <laughs> like, let's be real here. You know, yeah. this this is not a Division One school. This is not a you know you're probably a second tier lacrosse player on a third tier team, and you walk around with that stick all the time because you think it's an extension of your dick, and that makes sense because it's webbed at the end. Oh man, you were really so tweaking that. Said. You were really tweaking that guy's psyche. <laughs> Well, I was, I mean, I was pissed. He was, I gave him a chance to be a decent human being. The yeah. sign gave him a chance to be a decent human being. He was very purposefully trying to be an asshole. Yeah. So, he leaves. He comes back with the lacrosse team. And they stand behind everyone. Ooh. So, no one can see them but me. Because oh. I'm facing them. No one can see them but me. And they all have their sticks. And they are tapping them into their hands like they're going to beat me with them. Oh, man. And I'm like okay, this is not good. There's like 20 or 30 guys here who oh, want to kick my ass. Oh, God. <laughs> and it was, prob- it was probably, you know, 20 minutes or so of this. I just have to keep doing my set. Yeah, yeah. And just hope things kind of resolve <laughs> themselves. And because I'm just like, okay, get the crowd on my side, get the crowd on my side, get the crowd on my side. And thankfully, the student activities director um, sees this. He approaches them, and he told me after the show, he basically said, if any of you are still standing here in the next five minutes, all of you will be thrown out of this school. Aha. Uh-huh. And yeah. they left. And they left. Yeah, and good good for him. And they left, and... Man, that's a bit and, of a... you know, it's just a huge sigh of relief. That's a rough situation to be in. Hey, man, you know, I'm a, I'm a pretty big guy, uh, powerlifting champion and all that stuff. You need a bodyguard. Give me a holler. Well, I appreciate that. I'm, I'm now, I'm now bigger than I used to be. I'm certainly no powerlifting champion, but I used to be. You know, at that time, I mean, I was still six four, but I was probably you know one sixty, one seventy, and now I'm oh, wow. now I'm two ten. Oh, there so, you go. There so you it's go. a little, you know, I get a little less scared these days. Yeah. But back then, you know. Back then, I was I could barely hide behind the microphone. Stand. You know that that kind of ugliness has always been out there. There's always been those kind of people who who react in in, in those ways when they're challenged. Um, I see some of the things, uh, some of the back and forth that you get into. It's quite entertaining when you get into it with with people on social media. Uh, how do you feel today about the the ugliness that's in the air back home in the states? Um, you have you have these people, and to me, there's no equivalency. You know, a lot of people say, "Well, what about the libtards?" You know, what about the libtards? Every time I see see violence uh, perpetrated on someone, it's coming from the right. Um, uh, are, are you scared? Are, do, do you get worried? You know, with the, with the political climate being what it is, and with you touching on politics in your comedy. Well, there was actually a so there was a study of domestic terrorism. Yep. And, you know, politically motivated terrorism. And 100% of the politically motivated terrorism death in America in the last 20 years has been from the right. 100%. There wasn't a single one on the left. Now, there were some instances of violence, but they were much smaller, much more contained, and did not result in any death. Right. The... I do not think it is any worse than it ever was. I do think 
that we can see it now. And that's the difference. And that would be because of it social media, be right? Well, because of social media and because, you know, Trump emboldened people. Yeah, yeah. But the idea of, oh, it's so bad now, it's like, okay, I was born closer. Actually, anyone who's 30 or older was yeah. born closer to the Civil Rights Act than they are to today. Yeah. So the idea of, like, lynchings and beatings and even police violence, as much as we see it now, it always exists. It's always, always. yeah, it's always been I there. Once, I once heard a Philly cop talking to someone else about, like, how, how he can position himself so that the dash cam doesn't pick up what he's doing. Yeah, you know, like and how, yeah. how, yeah, and and cops have been, you know, just to put it all on the table, I am a former cop. I was a police officer in the south suburbs of Chicago, and I saw these things that that are that have come to light today, you know, through social media and and cell phone cameras and whatnot. But that stuff has always been there. I don't get the sense either that there's more of it today. I just believe it's more visible. It's always been there. Yeah, the only reason that, you know, we were outraged about Rodney King is that someone happened to have a camcorder back then. Exactly, yeah. Like in the, you know, in the early 90s, we never saw footage of anything. Right, right. Now we now we have footage. Yep, yep. And that, that, to me, that's the only difference. I do not believe there's more police violence. Uh, I don't believe there's more racism in the police. I don't believe there's any more systemic uh, racism either. I believe all of those things have been there. It's just that now it's being spoken on. Now it's being seen through video footage. And, and actually, I think it's a good thing. I think that is a positive thing that is being spoken of. And I think it's a positive thing that it's as visible as it is now because... It seemed before like it was something that people, and to a certain extent today, people just don't want to talk about it. You can't say the word systemic racism without half of your white friends turning their backs on you. And it shouldn't be like that. It should be something that we can talk about. Well, well, you know, I'm I'm, I'm pretty proud of who I'm friends with. And so thankfully, you know, those, those, those percentages are a little lower for me. But well, yeah, um, <laughs> maybe I need to check the, my maybe I need to check my friends list. <laughs> Speak for yeah. myself. Yeah, um, yep. I mean I'm I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding around. But the <laughs> yeah, but the idea of you know being able to talk about it. I mean, one of the things you know I did a, I did a video on it, and one of the things I talked about was like, do you think you know listen listen to rap, listen to rap music from the '80s. Yeah. Do you think that for the last 35 years? All these rappers were just making up the problem, <laughs> and it was somehow resonating with people despite it being made up. Yeah, like this is this has been in the lyrics of songs. This has been in movies, been in TV for decades. Yeah, and it it wasn't just a trope that was made up. This is something that has been a problem. Yeah, it's something that's been there all along. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. You know, I, I know you were just just kidding uh, about friends and whatnot, and so was I to a, to a certain extent. But there's also a little bit of reality in what I said because 
on my podcast, most of my episodes are just like this one. It's me having a, a good conversation with a good person. But I also do solo episodes where I kind of riff on, you know, the topic of the day. And very often that riffing leans towards uh, political and social situations. So I had when when uh, when George Floyd was killed, I had a very yeah. Um, a very, a very strong-willed statement uh, for about 40 minutes in a podcast. And I literally lost friends because of that. Uh, some of my white friends, it made them uncomfortable because I, as a black man, was using terms like systemic racism and white allies and things like that. Uh, they felt, my interpretation is that they, they felt too challenged by that conversation. I was stepping outside of this comfortable John Allen that they knew that didn't talk about racism and things like that. And all of a sudden I am this black guy talking about those things. And unfortunately some of my friends didn't know how to handle that. And they, they headed for the Hills. I haven't spoken with them since. That's a sad development. Yeah, That's I, a sad development. Yeah. If there's, if there's one benefit of Trump, from the pandemic and, you know, and BLM, I mean, obviously there are many benefits of BLM, but if there's one benefit to me that all those things share in common is that I know who the demons are now. Yeah. And there were a couple of comics who I got along with because they were fun and I liked their material and, you know, they, we had a good time hanging out after shows. Uh Uh-huh. And I see their social media, and I see them talking about how this is a plot from Soros, and et yeah. cetera, et cetera. Yeah. You know, all the, you know, and, and just all these dog whistle, this dog whistle garbage. And eventually I just go, oh, I thought you were smart. My mistake. <laughs> and I just, yeah. I just know to, to, you know, not mess with it anymore. And one of, the, one of the toughest things for me is, as a really big baseball fan, and as someone who has done some stuff in the world of broadcasting and, and just baseball journalism, right. um, I have a number of players on my Facebook. Okay. And yeah. this has this has allowed me to see who's who. Uh-huh. Dave Magan, who you know played who played for the Mets in the eighties, he is I love his posts. He's very rational. He's very you know, the stuff he posts about Trump and the election, it's very well thought out. Very calm, very like, okay, if you support Trump, tell me this, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And he's kind of the exception of the rule because a lot of the guys who played in the 70s and 80s were very, very conservative. Right. Not right. only are they the age of people who are now typically conservative, yeah. but also back then, you know, there was a real separation between the jock and the nerd. Now you have the nerdy jock. It's a new thing. <laughs> yeah. But back in the day, <laughs> that, didn't, that didn't exist. And so you have all of these, you know, on my feed was just filled with these guys who I watched as a kid talking about how, like, yeah, you have no respect for the flag, stand up, Junior, and, like, all that garbage. Yeah, yeah. And it it allowed me to not waste any more emotional space on them. I can identify with that. I'm a a little bit older than you. I was born in 69. So I had, I probably have a lot of the the sports figures that I looked up to when I was a kid are probably some of the same ones that you looked up to. And yes, with this age of Trump, uh, unfortunately, or maybe it's a good thing that we see, you know, who's who. Um, uh, But sometimes it is surprising. I, yeah, I don't know, man. I had 
I don't know if I should say this guy's name because I love him to death. He's a good friend and I love him to death, but he's a, a celebrity, a musician who I absolutely love to death. He's been on my podcast and it was actually right before we did the podcast episode, it kind of came out through his social media that he is a, 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 a very enthusiastic Trump supporter. And it was almost a disappointment. But what I'm glad for is that I didn't judge the guy totally because of his support of, of, of Trump, because we're still friends, you know, and we did the pod, podcast episode and we, we, we actually tightened our our uh, relationship, even though he's this Trump supporter. And I think that illustrates something that I wish we could see more of, um, that just because you're on the other end of the political spectrum doesn't mean you have to be enemies. Uh, Joe Biden summed it up quite well, well. He said we're he said we're opponents, not enemies. However, <laughs> and, well, and there's a big I, however. I disagree. I, no, go, yeah, go ahead. Go for your big however. Well, 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 yeah, well, well, I, I was going to say, however, um, I do struggle with this thing that I, I can't understand how people can voice their support for Trump along economic lines. First of all, I don't believe that we are economically better off under him. I think it's worse. Uh, screw the doggone uh, Dow Jones. I don't care about that. I'm looking at the 50 million Americans who don't have enough food to eat. So, so, but, but, but regardless of that fact, there are people who say they support Trump because of his economic policies. I don't understand. The big however is, is I don't understand how they can ignore his bigotry, his racism, his misogyny. I don't get that. I truly don't get that. That's my, well, that's my however. Okay. My, my however yeah. is the only reason people support his economic policies is because they have not studied economics. <laughs> the right is the right are classical economics. The left are Keynesian economics. Uh, economists. I'm, I'm sorry. Say, say that again. Keynesian I, I, economics. You, I, you faded out the last sentence so you said. The, so the the left believe in Keynesian economics, and the right believe in classical economics. Yeah. Um, there was a moment when I was studying economics in college. There was a moment where I asked my teacher out loud. I said, you know, and, and I was looking at the data and looking at how. Under every Democratic president, more jobs have been created. GDP yes. has gone up. Yes. Like, unemployment's gone down. Every single one of them. Yes. Under Republican presidents, even in the best of times, like under Reagan and people who are fortunate to be presiding over a boom, they have not created as many jobs. They, the unemployment is not as good. The GDP is not as good. The national debt goes higher. It's every single one. There are no exceptions. Under Democratic presidents who have had, uh, I believe it's four less, uh, four fewer years to govern since, I think this was since after the Great Depression, Democratic presidents have created twice as many jobs. Wow. In, you know, in less time. And Trump is the first president we've had where there's been a net job loss 
under him. He's really been a now, shitty. He's really been a shitty president. He really has been, and I don't understand why his followers don't see that. What makes them ignore these facts? You know, everything you're saying is true. It's not opinion. These are facts that you that you just put out there about the what the Democratic presidents have done economically. Why is it that this man's followers refuse to acknowledge that? What happened? Well, because they're <laughs> they're one issue voters, and so they're one issue voters. And here here's my however. I will argue all day with people about economic policy. I am thrilled to. Uh-huh. I happen to think that the thing that sent us into the recession was Bush's tax cut yeah. uh, or Bush's tax refund. That that stupid $300 back to, uh, to every American, it was so dumb because some of us, look, the government was going to invest the money in the country, but yes. some of us don't. Some of us spend that money overseas. Some of yes. us save it. Some of us lose it. And that money gets pulled out of the economy. And so I'm happy to have that argument with people and still love them and respect them. Yeah. The argument I will not have with them is whether or not people should have the same civil rights as each other. I will not have that argument. Amen. I will not have the argument about, about whether or not inciting violence is okay. I will not have the argument about whether or not separating people from their families as a policy is okay. And Amen. The, and, you know, and they, can, they can be argue until they're blue in the face about like, oh, well, you know, some of this happened under Obama. And it's like, okay, so if you don't like when it happened under, under Obama and Trump did 10 times as much, shouldn't you not like Trump then? Very and good it argument. Is, yes. It is, thank you. It is because they are one-issue voters. And, the, and that issue is often racism, homophobia, etc. Yeah. Or they are it's cognitive dissonance. Yes. It's, there's a great quote, um, and I wish I knew who it was who it was from. But it, there's a great quote that America is a nation of temporarily embarrassed millionaires. <laughs> it is. It is people who feel that their time will come. It's just a matter of waiting. And you know what? If you are a 20-year-old kid with a dream, great. And you want to vote for tax breaks for millionaires because you think you're going to be one, fine. It's a little delusional, but fine. Hell, if you are a 50-year-old with a dream because you have an app idea or your cousin's starting a company or whatever it is, fine. But if if you are in your 50s working two shifts, you know, a day at Applebee's and picking up another one at the Home Depot and tell me how you're going to be a millionaire. Tell me what your plan is. Yeah. Because I don't think you have one. And if you don't have one, then stop acting like you do. You know, that's a very good point. I'm so glad you say that. That's That's been my feelings all along. You know, when I came here to Norway uh, almost 20 years ago, uh, it kind of, as scary as it was, it freed me up to totally redefine uh, uh, well, not totally, but redefine some aspects of who I was, but definitely start down a totally new path career-wise because I was starting from scratch. I didn't have any connections here. And it forced me into a situation where I really had to think about what I was doing. And the sad part about that is why did I have to uproot myself from everything familiar before I started thinking and planning and, and really having a direction in my life? Um yeah, you know, everybody wants to be well, a millionaire, but yeah, what's your plan? What is your plan? What's your plan to get the first hundred thousand? What's your plan to what, what's your plan for any step towards success? Unfortunately, not a lot of people have a concrete plan. They have a lot of wishes, a lot of desires, yeah, but yeah. very little plan. 
if get that first hundred thousand, okay, cool. Now do that ten times. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, go, go do it <laughs> yeah. nine more times. Yeah. Yeah. The the uh, it, it is it's it's utterly ridiculous, and you know I see it happen. There were all these interviews after Trump won in 2016 with, you know, what the media would largely call the forgotten voter. Yes. And they would talk to these guys who were from, you know, small town Pennsylvania, and they would, you know, and and I would watch these interviews. I saw two in a row, both on CNN, and the guys both basically said the same thing. It was, you know, a, a white guy in his 50s or 60s, and he was talking about how all the jobs are gone and, you know, you, you can't find work anymore and we're just not being hurt. And I'm watching this, losing my mind, because what I want the reporter to say is, but the unemployment rate nationally is way down. So how can you say the jobs are gone? Do you mean the job that's within walking distance <laughs> of your small town is gone? Uh-huh. Yes, that job is gone. Do you mean you can no longer get hired simply by being a white guy with a high school degree? Yeah, that job is gone. But the factories have moved to the cities because there's more people who live there. And they also started hiring women and non-white people. And they started requiring a bit more of an education. And that is none of those things are bad. And I get that, okay, if you spend 40 years of your life in one profession, it is extremely scary to suddenly watch that profession go away. But also, go ahead and try to sell ice door-to-door now. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead and try and, you know, try to try to fix typewriters. Go ahead and there are professions that go away. Yes. And it is not a problem with the person working there. You just have to evolve. And the fact is, when I started as a comic, all you needed to do to fill a show was go on morning radio. There was no such thing as a social media star. Right, right. It was go on morning radio, you sell out a show, you try to get a spot on the Tonight Show, your career is made. But you know what? I had to evolve, and so does everyone else. Speaking of evolving, speaking of evolving, one cool thing uh, that you're doing is this Nowhere Comedy Club. Uh, that right there is a perfect example in evolving, changing to fit the times. You know, uh, Corona fell upon us. Uh, a lot of the venues shut down. Uh, so, so that just devastated uh, booking arrangements for a lot of for a lot of us who are doing stand up, or, or in my case, stand up and music. Uh, and then here you come with this concept, the Nowhere Comedy Club. Can you speak briefly uh, about what that is? I think it's pretty fascinating. Sure. So Nowhere Comedy is a digital venue. It is something I co-created with Ben Glebe, and we both had experience in the digital sphere before. He was live streaming shows on Facebook, and I had been producing VR shows. And the it's, you know, that old phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. And we weren't able to tour. Even if the venues were still open, absolutely yeah. not. It just wasn't safe. Right. And so... We had to come up with an idea of like, okay, what else can we do? And thankfully, there's enough technology that allows us to do this. I can't imagine how much tougher this would have been if everything was like dial up or if we didn't even have the web yet. But, you know, it was something that we go, okay, everyone's going to be indoors. Everyone's got a computer or a smartphone. How do we reach them? 
And yeah, we could do the same thing everybody else was doing, which was, you know, broadcasting one person doing stand up. Or we could think about why does the stuff in the real world that works, why does it work? And the reason why it works is because there's a club staff. If uh-huh. you just had your own performance, if you had your own performance and there was no one to monitor the audience, if something went wrong, you're screwed as a performer. Right. So first thing we had to do was we had to hire staff. Right. Also, imagine how bad it would be to perform for a crowd that's not allowed to laugh out loud. Ah, that would be horrible. There you go. Yeah. And so, yeah, and so we made sure that the audience was mic. And there were little things like this. The the comics who are like, oh well, what if they yell something out? I see that, and I'm just like, are you a coward suddenly? <laughs> what if they yell something out? That's our whole life. What if they yell something out? You deal with it in the moment. You yeah, want. yeah, really. Come on now, aren't we professionals? <laughs> yeah. Now look, a free show with the crowd mic is a terrible idea. Sure, sure. Because no one respects the show. But that also happens in real, like in the real world. I've done, you know, I don't produce free shows because whenever you produce a free show, there are people who will wander in and try to ruin it because it's free and they don't respect right, it. Right. So even if you charge someone two bucks. Yeah. It's enough for them to respect the show and it's self-selecting. It's um Well, let, let me let me kind of uh, arrest you on one little thing here. Didn't you have a stand-up special um was it Ginger Kid that was free on YouTube a couple 3 years back? You, oh. You had a you had a stand-up special I, it was I, the number I, it was the number 2 uh, yeah, Ginger Kid. Yeah, it was the number two YouTube special ever, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and, and, and well, at, at at the time, it's since been surpassed, and and so as you know, Secret Optimist at at a, at a certain point was the number one, and it's been right, surpassed. But, right. But I, you can put your art out there for free. I'm saying, I'm saying live events. Okay. If yeah, you okay, have, yeah. you know, the, understand. The, yeah. Yeah. The audience. Yeah, the audience at the taping paid. Okay, um, I understand. But the, yeah, but the you can give out. You know, I, I give out stuff for free all the time. I mean, my YouTube videos are free. I had a uh, I had an album that was pay what you want. Um, I just mean that you were the first to do you that. Know, it's weren't exactly you? that. Like you were the first, the first to first have an comedian. Yeah, I was the, the first, second. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I was I, I was a second artist. So Radiohead did it first, and I was so impressed by the whole thing that yeah. I was like, I want to do that too. Yeah. And, uh, so it was Radiohead's idea, but I, I was the first comedian, second artist and the, or, or that I know of anyway. And the, uh, the, you know, but to illustrate the point, when you give away a special for free, plenty of people watch 30 seconds of that thing and stop or plenty of people watch it in the background while they're doing something else. Um, because they don't, they didn't pay the money to download it, and they have to like sit there and get their money's worth. And that's right. part, you know, and that's part of the that's part of the gamble. Yeah, it's quite true that people don't appreciate things that are free the way they do for things they must pay for, even if it's only a dollar or two. Like you said, there's something about that transaction when they're paying for art. They 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 have a totally different appreciation for it. And I and I've seen that. You know, there's a difference between um, when I first got started doing open mics. 
there's a difference between that and, and doing a paid gig, even if it's a low paid gig, <laughs> there's still a huge difference in the audience. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's also a difference in how a lot of comedians approach a gig that they get paid for or a gig that they're doing for free. Yeah. Free. We do it too. Um, before, yeah. before we run out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want the Michael Richards story? Yeah. Let me have it, please. Let me have it. All right. So it's about two weeks before the incident, the lap factory and I'm doing a show at the improv and Michael Richards had been going around town doing some spots, you know, learning how to be a comedian. And so outside, you know, the comedians often will just kind of hang out outside and, you know, and just kind of shoot the shit. Where, where was so this? Was this gonna, a, where was you know, this? At, at the comedy store? Is that what you... This was, this was at the uh, Hollywood Improv. Hollywood Improv. Okay. Yeah. And so we're just shooting the shit, you know, talking. And it's weird because he's asking me for advice about performing on the road. You know, and I was, I had been a comic for, I don't know, five, six years at the time. It was a very, it was very odd to be involved, you know, to be like, oh, this is someone I grew up watching. I mean, Seinfeld was a hero of mine. I was obsessed with that show. Yeah. And so I was really enjoying it, but I started noticing a couple of little weird things. He kept referencing, he served in Vietnam, and he kept referencing it, even though none of us were bringing it up, it didn't really fit in the conversation. (laughs) And then at one point, at one point, another comic runs across the street in Melrose, and that part of Melrose has no crosswalks. Uh-huh. If you want to do it legally, you got to walk like two blocks down, cross, walk two blocks back. Yeah. And so all the time, we will just park on the other side of the street and run across. And so we did that, and you know, and someone was joking with him and was like, oh, "I got to be careful. You can get a jaywalking ticket." And then Michael Richards just launches into this story about how he got a jaywalking ticket crossing Melrose once. And it all makes sense at first. But then, as the cop is giving him the ticket, in his version of the story, he says to the cop, I can't believe you're giving me a ticket for jaywalking. I saw my friends lie face down dead in a ditch in Vietnam, and you're giving me a jaywalking ticket? Oh, come on. That's appropriate. (laughs) Well, all all the rest of us kind of looked at each other as if, like, well, that's not why he was giving you a ticket. And it occurred to me in that, in like at that time, before we saw what happened at the uh, factory, it occurred to me at that time, like, oh, he is damaged from serving. Like he is, uh-huh. he is carrying, he is carrying a lot with him that is still there from the time he served, and he has not worked it through. And I see, I see. War is hell, and it has a lot of casualties of people that never die. And I, I truly believe he is one of them. That is so sad, and that is something that not a lot of people are aware of. I've never, I, I never would have thought. I never would have thought. I, I can remember reading things that he has some sort, that he had some sort of military service background. But um, wow. That poor guy. Well, maybe yeah, that ex- maybe, was, uh, maybe that's the explanation, and for his later meltdown that he had. And also his apology that he did on Letterman after it happened. Yeah. By the way, this was Thanksgiving weekend, if you recall. That's right. Um, right. And so so his apology that happened a couple days later on Letterman was this weird kind of word salad where he talked about, 
you know, he kind of blamed it on the ongoing war in Iraq. And it was something that when I saw that, I was like, yep, that, that makes sense. Wow. This is where his head is. That explains it. Yeah. How's he doing now? I haven't heard anything about him in quite some time. How's, what's he up to now? Do you know? I, I don't know. Um, you know, he certainly stopped doing stand up after that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, occasionally he'll pop up in, you know, in, in a, a show or a movie. Yeah. Um, you know, every now and then. He, he was in that one with uh, Lisa Kudrow. Um, yes. Yeah. But I, you know, he's, he's just kind of, he's just kind of been quietly living his life. Which I understand, you know, don't put yourself back in that spotlight because boy, oh boy, was that bad. That was very bad. I mean, uh, talk about the downfall of a giant. Wow. Poor guy. That yeah. poor guy. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that story with me. I, I never, I don't, I don't think I would have heard that otherwise. So thank you for sharing that with me. Wow. There were only three or four of us that were there. So, wow. And I'm sure other people have had other experiences like that with him but sure sure yeah that was are you there i think you faded out yeah is. there you go you're back now yeah um, let, let me ask oh. you, let me, let me ask, let me ask you this, Steve, before I let you go. Um, have you had a stand-up comedian as a mentor up through the years or have you pretty much just paved your own way? Have you had a padre, oh, a, padre a mentor, a rabbi who has kind of helped you along the way? Absolutely. You know, whether it is people that I could just ask questions of, you know, like uh, Jimmy Brogan uh, really helped me through some stuff. Or people who were, you know, kind of comedy big brothers to me. Like uh, Pete Dominic and Eddie F both recommended me for some stuff. And, yeah. you know, there, there's there's a, a world of that. Um, you know, so much of that over the years. Yeah. That, you know, I, I mean, those are ones that certainly stand out to me. But there are, you know, there, there are dozens if not more of people who at some point you know reached a hand down and, and helped me out and so it's, it's something that i feel very passionate about doing for other people well i t i tell you um your passion for helping others has certainly manifested itself uh just in the fact that you're doing this podcast episode with me and you gave me uh an hour of your time granted selfishly motivated because i'm keeping you awake on a long road trip <laughs> Uh, but thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. You are, you are quite the guy. Um, what can I say? <laughs> what can I say? Thank well, you. Thank you so much. I really, for this. I really appreciate that. It was a pleasure. And, uh, I'll be honest, you know, I've been doing a lot of these over the last couple of days and some of them feel more like work than others. And this was an absolute pleasure. Oh man. Well, thank you so much. Um, what can I say? Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Uh, thanks for your time. Keep doing what you're doing. Don't listen to those hate. Well, no, I take it back. Listen to the haters on social media because I love your replies. It's absolutely hilarious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Uh, and, and good luck. I, in I listen. I listen to them. I listen to them, but I don't hear them. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Big difference. Big difference. Well, congratulations on all the uh, success that you've had so far. Man, I could have done another hour with you, but I, I know you've got to get going. Um, thanks for your time. Congratulations on everything, and good luck with everything you have coming up in the future. I, uh, 
I'm sure you're going to keep us entertained for quite some time. And, uh, man, just enjoy the journey and keep on growing. Hey, much appreciated. You have a wonderful day. Thank you, brother. Take care. Bye. Steve Hofstetter, everybody. Bye now. Thank you and goodbye.